What's up, guys? Welcome to episode number 38 of the Joe Ciccarelli Show. Today's episode is a conversation with John Gorski. John is a was introduced to me um, through a mutual friend, Shelby Koch. For those of you that listen to all my episodes, which is every single one of you I know, uh, Shelby was on a previous episode, um, and Shelby was basically like, look, I have this guy that I go water skiing with and um, really successful, just came off the sale of a big business that he ran for the last 15 years. Turns out it was a family business that's been around for, I think, 50, 60 years. We talk about that in the episode. And he's like, I just think it'd be a great guy to talk to. The guy lived the American dream. He's done all components of business. He's got a law degree, just a very, very intelligent, knowledgeable guy when it comes to business and life. So, of course, for me, I jumped all over that opportunity John and I connected once. We had a phone conversation and he was like, yeah, man, I'll come on. Uh, Give me some time to finish the sale of my business and then um, I'll come on for an hour or so. And so that was the the outcome of that is this conversation, the conversation that follows from here. Uh, And it was just a great chat. I mean, the guy you could tell very quickly is a very smart guy and I kind of bounce all over the map. Um, He's got an interesting story. The business has a really interesting story and kind of how his parents were strategic about involving all of the kids. I think he has five siblings in the business and John ended up being the CEO. And um, we talked about going through the, uh, the Great Recession and kind of how he managed that. He acquired a bunch of businesses throughout. I think he said he grew up from 300 to like 1,500 employees. And um, it's just a all, all, all around interesting business conversation. So if you're someone who's interested in business and how certain people at a high level of business operate, I think this is a great, great episode. And I kind of pushed John a little bit at the end on, you know, tips on um, how you manage the personal side of business as well, because we all know that they're not separate things. And takes a good a good personal life to to have a good business and um oftentimes vice versa as well as well so i'm not going to ruin any more of the episode i'll let you guys listen to it i hope you enjoy john welcome to the joe ciccarelli show man it's good to have you thanks joe good to be here appreciate the invite yeah we got uh connected through a mutual friend um seems like there's a lot of cool things Uh, wherever you guys water ski there's a lot of cool people that hang out around there huh it's a, you know, it's a great sport, whether it's in South Florida, I'm originally from the Midwest, a lot of great uh-huh. friendships that I've developed through the sports. It's all an amateur sport, right? Um, yeah. There's prize money for those of us who are doing this. It's just for fun, but you meet great people and um, really lifelong friends that I've developed uh, through the sport with our mutual friend that introduced us and as well as some others that I've known for real decades at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So the mutual friend, he won't mind us saying it, is uh, Shelby Koch, who was uh, an episode a little while back. Um, and let me, I'll tee you up a little bit because I talked to Shelby yesterday and I'm like, hey, you know, what do you think I should ask John about? And his first thing was the guy, the guy lived the American dream, man. You know, he built it up. It was a family business. And so a little background for people, you know, obviously uh, Shelby had come to me and said, hey, this is a guy you want to talk to. He's just coming off, um, you know, uh, the sale of a really successful business. And we won't get into the particulars around that, but generally speaking has really done some incredible stuff, built this family business up. Um, so I want you in your words though, like which, you know, give us a little bit about your story. Sure. So, you know, I'll focus more around the business, right? It was a, sure. a business my father and mother started back in 1967. So way back 53, <laughs> 54 years ago now at this point, right? Uh, he uh-huh. was a PhD biochemist working in a pathology laboratory, which is testing all the clinical reference samples from the local hospitals of all places in Toledo, Ohio. 
And Toledo, as you may not know, is considered the glass capital of the world because glass. three of the top five companies at one point were headquartered in Toledo, Ohio. Uh, three of the top five glass companies. So Owens, Illinois, Owens, Illinois, Libby Owens Ford, and um, Owens Corning Fiberglass. So like in- glass, like a cup of, you know, like that container, sort of thing? Glass, yes. Containers, fiberglass. Um, now they're making plastic bottles. So think of the two liter plastic bottles you buy in the store uh-huh. with Coke or Pepsi or whatever products are in them. Um, so all kinds of glass containers, the drinking containers at restaurants. Uh, Libby sells all these cups and wine glasses and things that you might drink from when you're out and about. And um, those companies were making pharmaceutical containers. So things that the drug distributors or drug manufacturers would put their pharmaceuticals in, right? Those mm-hmm. little vials that the doctors or the nurses draw from, you know, the, the, the vial. And so one of the glass companies went to the pathology laboratory and said, we know we need to test these new plastic containers, but we don't know how. And so there were these MDs at the pathology laboratory and they said, you know, it's not blood, it's not urine, it's not human tissue. It's not something we really want to get into, right? My dad said, do you guys mind if I do this on my own time? So he would go into the pathology laboratory during the day and do the clinical reference samples. And then in the evenings and on the weekends, go work for the glass company in their laboratory doing what we call leachables and extractables, looking for impurities in the glass or plastic containers to make sure that they wouldn't leach into the drug substance once they were packaged with the materials. And so he started doing this on his own time. And eventually one of the other pathology laboratory MDs invested with him to start up his own laboratory doing this testing for the pharmaceutical industry. And that led to medical device testing in the early 1970s. So the FDA didn't start regulating medical devices until 1976. By that time, North American Science Associates has already been in business for 10 years testing orthopedic implants and pacemakers and catheters and products that were not regulated yet by the US FDA. And so when the FDA started regulating medical devices, these companies came to them and said, how do you want us to submit these data to you for review? Because we don't know what you expect. Sure. The FDA said, you know, you got to go talk to this guy in Toledo, Ohio. Uh, and that's kind of when the hockey stick happened back in the 70s when FDA started regulating medical devices. And at that point, my dad had already become independent from his other work and put everything into this business with six kids and a mortgage that he had at the time. So wow. he spent his life's work and he didn't do that till he was like 40 years old. So that buildup, then he hired really great people. He became a salesperson himself. And so you think of the PhDs of the world, right? Not always your most social people in the world, yeah. <laughs> at least, you know, uh, kind of hard to have two of them walk through a door at the same time. Right. <laughs> um, but he didn't have that ego, right. Cause he had to be humble and hungry to go build a business. And so the old story is that when he was on the road, my mom would use her first name and middle name as her kind of business name, not the last name. Cause he didn't want it to sound like a small family business. And when he would have appointments, he would go get ill in the bushes before he walked in because sales was not his forte. Um, but, Talk about know, getting out of your comfort zone, huh? Exactly, exactly right. And so that's kind of been one of our mantras over the years is you got to get outside your comfort zone, 
right? And understand what that zone is, because if you don't, you're never going to push yourself to do great things. Uh, and it's not easy, right? As you know, Joe, Joe building a business. So um, that all happened back in the 70s and 80s. And then he, he, he essentially retired probably you know, mid 80s ish, but still dabbled in the business. But he ended it off to some really great leaders. So we've had really great non-family CEOs in the business over the years. Uh, and I'll never forget great guidance from a family business advisor in the early 90s. He told us, John, there's three best practices for a family business. One is have an outside board of directors. One is have a written strategic plan. And third is to have annual family meetings away from the business. And so I think that kind of built the platform for my mom and dad to really rely upon good outside advisors to build a business and surround them with great people, surround themselves with great people. Um, and, and that's how they built the business up. So um, great non-family leadership came in in the 90s and 2000s. Um, our last CEO before me retired in, two, in 2006, and he was an MBA type. Um, the CEO before him was a PhD type. So I've had two really great mentors over the years, not just those two, but others, one on the business side of the equation and one on the scientific, because I'm a non-scientist. I went to law school. Yeah, I remember you telling me that. Yeah. For a while, right? And then got into Was, was that by design? Was that by design by like, hey, we, or was it just of interest or a combination? So a uh, little bit of both. Little did we know. So with my older siblings, um, two were MBAs, one in finance, one in marketing, one was a PhD, and I was the lawyer of the family. We didn't realize our parents were kind of guiding us in these different career paths because their thought was, if we all worked in the business someday, they didn't want us to run into each other. We wanted, uh, they wanted us to different skill sets and professions. So if we were peers, that would be fine. But if we were bosses of each other, that, you know, that's, that's prone to some kind of complexity. Uh, sure. It turned out that way anyway, but by their design, we went into different fields to try and not run into each other in the business. And as it turns out, there were four of us out of six that ended up working in the business for a good chunk of our careers. Um, but I came through the legal route and then came into business and then did some selling. I was in the field for three years, uh, selling in the Southeast US for the company, and then eventually moved into management over time. So it was a progression, just like any other career. Um, but when I took over in 06, we're about 300 people, and today we're about 1,400. So we wow. grew the business nicely over the last, you know, 15 years or so. Um, God, I have so many questions. Uh, let's start from the top. Uh, and I don't want to get into family politics here, but you know, you had four of you that worked for the business. How did you get the uh, not as the CEO? You know, it was a really good process uh, when our past president. This, he, he was very clear when he came on board. He was, a, he was a pro, right? He came in and said, hey, you know, my time horizon is, is seven years, plus or minus a year, right? So we all knew that going into it. And none of us at the time were, you know, ready, willing, or able to kind of do that. This was in the late 90s. Uh, mm -hmm. So literally two years before he wanted to step down. So in 2004, he started talking to our board of directors, right, and the family around the transition. And at that point, my dad had already passed away, but my mom was still around. So he did a really nice job communicating with the constituents, right? The key shareholders, the board members, um, to let them know of the plan. I didn't know this at the time, but I was being developed. Uh, and, and so when it became clear that that was a potential pathway, 
they mm-hmm. sent me to an outside industrial psychologist. I had to go through all of the psychometric testing. I had to really, I had to do um, initiatives within the business to kind of stretch my own self and do some international work. So I had to go to Europe and um, oversee a portion of our French laboratory, uh, which is not an easy proposition. I didn't speak French, so I had to <laughs> navigate through the complexity of of doing some international work that, you know, maybe I wasn't quite qualified for, but sometimes you learn as you go, right? And so doing different things in the business, I think, plus the additional work and board development and support and challenge, right? I also had to do a pitch to the family and the board about why I should become CEO. What was Uh, that pitch like? um, So it was really questions around what's the future look like, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And I did a lot of market-based research at the time. So I was trying to really understand our clients who I had many visits and many great relationships with, um, but really did some industry research. And um, that research allowed me the platform to kind of look into the future to the extent that I could and try and predict, hey, our industry is growing at a nice clip. You know, it's about a four or 5% annual growth industry in medical device. Um, at the time, it was probably about, you know, 250 to $300 billion industry. So about a third of the pharmaceutical industry. So when we talk medical devices, we're talking about pacemakers and heart valves yeah. and catheters and orthopedic implants, right? Things that go in the body to help diagnose or cure, but aren't necessarily a drug, right? And so that mm-hmm. industry today is about a 450 to $500 billion industry annually. Companies like J&J, Medtronic, Boston Scientific, right? really reputable firms that that make product and sell to physicians and healthcare providers um, for use by, you know, and we've gone, we've all been into hospitals, right? It's really satisfying to see clients' names of products on the shelf of things yep. that we help evaluate to help get cleared uh, by the FDA to, you know, provide care to patients. Um, so in any event, that, that research allowed me to kind of take a peek into the future um, I didn't see the economic recession coming in 2008, which I don't know a whole lot of other people did uh, unless you were in the housing market. But that clearly uh, kind of thwarted our, our growth efforts for a period of time. But the good thing about this industry is that it rebounds pretty quickly. Healthcare tends to be. Uh, yeah, it has to. Yeah. Right. And comes back rather quickly. And we saw that here in the global pandemic as well in the last, you know, year, year and a half where. Yes, everybody was impacted for a period of time, but medical devices tend to come back pretty quickly in that grand scheme of things. So within six months, the industry was back on track with R&D and growth. So anyway, long story short was that vision had to provide some confidence to shareholders and the board that, you know, A, I had a sense of what was going on in the industry and B, I had a plan for growth that did involve both organic growth as well as some mergers and acquisitions and I prepared the shareholders for some allocation of capital for those purposes. Um, didn't have a list, you know, per se of companies, but had a couple on the list that I wanted to kind of go talk to, right? But I needed to get their kind of support before heading down that strategic pathway because that ultimately is what led us to some of the growth we're experiencing today. But we had to come up with that plan at the time and figure out how to be more relevant to our clients and grow the business both organically and through M&A. Huh. Um, something popped into my head. It's a little off topic, but kind of about this. So one of the things you mentioned, like when you go into the hospital, you see these products by, you know, Boston Scientific, Medtronic, 
whoever it is, and you guys were part of, you know, certifying those, right? Um, so is there like from a integrity, obviously integrity, but more political standpoint, do, do you get like these companies reaching out to you? Like, hey man, like let's go out to steak dinners tonight. So, you know, and here's our product or is it not? I mean, does, you know, how, how does that work? So there's definitely a sales effort that we have. Uh, and we do have a team of about 100 people in our sales and marketing group globally. Uh, they are charged with visiting clients regularly and not just selling services, right, but making sure the client gets what they need over time. Um, there's a lot of really strict rules in the industry for physicians, sure. for clients where gifts are not allowed, right? Maybe there's a de minimis gift. Okay, can I take a client out to lunch? Absolutely, right, for 50 bucks, whatever that is. Um, but whining and dining, you know, big steak dinners, expensive bottles of wine, that's not typical in our industry. Um, purchasing personnel and clients really don't want that. And a lot of times they have in our master services agreements, um, requirements against providing gifts. So from an integrity standpoint, you've got to draw a line and make sure that that's not going to kind of interfere with the quality of the results that we're providing to clients, because sure. we're talking about data that supports safety and efficacy of a product that's going to go into a human body. We don't want any questions around integrity of our data or, you know, there are no gifts allowed to FDA personnel, right? That's strictly off limits, right? They've got to report it through uh, a very formal mechanism if anybody offers something like that. So it's really in the industry, it's a self-policing industry, but it's also very strict. And that's what I like about the integrity of the industry. These are good mm -hmm. companies, making great product. They care about the patient, right? They care about the quality of the products that they're making. Nobody wants to see any patient go through any harm as a result of a product that anybody's making. So the standards for quality, data integrity, um, you know, compliance to the regulations are all very high. And we're all subject to, um, uh, we're all subject to inspections by the FDA that are unannounced. So the FDA can literally knock on your door this morning and ask to see your records, ask to see product, ask to see how you manufacture it. In our case, they'll ask to see our data, our laboratory data, our clinical data to assure we're compliant with a series of regulations that are outlined in the Code of Federal Regulations um, wow. for making products, whether it's a pharmaceutical, whether it's a medical device, whether it's, quote unquote, good laboratory practice regulations. There's all kinds of regulations in the U.S. and in Europe and in other developed countries around the world to assure the data that these administrators and these reviewers are looking at have um, support and they're bound by fact and they've got objective evidence to support the data that we're you know, indicating is what makes this product safe and effective for its intended use. So wow. the yeah. whole body of, of compliance is a huge part of our industry and uh, uh, not only a big cost, but a big investment for companies to make sure they can prove what they're making is compliant to those regulations. Compliant to the regulations, yeah. And that's what I thought. I, I guess I was curious because, yeah, I mean, it's it's a big uh, it's a big thing. So um, you take over the business in 06. <laughs> Welcome, CEO. Here's a um, global uh, re recession, if you will. Um, what was the biggest lesson you had to learn, you think? What was the biggest struggle for you when you kind of took over the CEO? And yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. And I think the recession is a great, you know, lesson learned. It, 
it was being decisive and not procrastinating on difficult decisions. Yeah. And as I look on it, right? CEOs don't always have the luxury of time and we don't always have the luxury of perfect data. As a matter of fact, we're dealing mostly with imperfect data. Um, and coming through a scientific organization where data is a cornerstone of decision-making, but leadership is not. You don't have a lot of data. Maybe you get 20, 30, 40% of what you might want. It's never 70 or 80 or 90% clear mm -hmm. because that would be easy to make a decision. Sure. But in a global recession, when you don't know where the bottom is, you don't know how long it's going to last, and revenue drops 30% in a quarter, you've got to look around and say, okay, now what? Uh, and I think the biggest lesson I learned was, look, don't wait for more data. Don't, don't seek it out because it's, it's, not, it's not there in a situation like that. We really wanted to take care of our people. Um, yes, we did cut back some hours, but we didn't lay people off during the recession because we knew our people are knowledge workers and they're hard to find and, and train and develop. And once, you, once we have that, we don't want to lose that. Mm -hmm. And we knew this was a cycle. We just didn't know how long it was, how long it was going to last. So we kind of waited it out. Yes, we cut back on some hours and some benefits, but we kept people employed and they had an income stream so that when it did come back and it did, in our case, it came back pretty nicely towards the end of 09, actually probably beginning of 010. Um, and so that decisiveness, that's when I, I think I turned the corner about being just a, you know, a, a manager, right, to a leader as a CEO as being decisive, even in the face of uncertainty. And that's probably one of those lessons learned that you have to experience it uh, until you understand it. But I think from, you know, your listener standpoint, that's what I would say. Hey, even if the decision was wrong, I can fix most, most decisions, you know, a, a month or a quarter later. But the absence of a decision, you can't fix because you haven't learned anything in the meantime. So when we can make even incremental decisions that move the business forward, even if it's wrong, we know not to go down that road anymore, but at least we made that decision and we're getting on with it and we can correct it downstream. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those are more tactical decisions versus strategic, but at the same time, we also did our first acquisition, which was, which closed at the end of, uh, let's see, it was December of 09. We did the first acquisition and, and that was a, that was an interesting proposition too, because, you know, really the economy hadn't come back yet. And here we are going to spend uh, millions of dollars on an acquisition that I believed in, but the board was like, John, are you sure now is the right time? <laughs> and I had to really do some soul searching and make sure that it was. And I said, look, the industry's down. Now's the best time because I want to come out on fire when it comes back. And fortunately for us, it did in 2010. So it all worked out. Um, but that, yeah, that was, that was, I remember that was a sleepless night one time. <laughs> um, say you said something that kind of piqued my interest when I turned the corner from being a manager to a leader. What does that look like in your opinion? Another great question. Uh, you know, so there's, there's a whole probably series of elements that go into that. Uh, sure. <laughs> you know, to me, it comes down to building trusting relationships with your team and with your constituents. Um, there's a, we had a values set in the organization. I think a lot of companies have values, right? But, you know, we, we try to make sure they're not just words on the wall. We live them and I use them as filters. So when we talk about our values, we use them to identify potential acquisitions. We want to make sure the cultural fit is right with those targets. 
Uh, we want to make sure that they align rough from a strategic standpoint and from an operational standpoint. Um, and I think the only way you work through those and make those acquisitions successful is starting with the team and making sure that there's trust. Uh, and that's just, you know, trust happens over time, right? Mm -hmm. You do what you say, you say what you do, um, you support people. And so I always looked at it kind of as a hub and spoke where I'm serving a number of different constituents. Um, one set of constituents is shareholders because they always want a good return on their investment. One constituent is our clients. You know, they always, they want good quality, good service for a fair price. One of our constituents is the regulatory people. We've got to make sure our operations are compliant and meeting uh, expected standards. Um, another constituent to me is, is our leadership team and our associates mm -hmm. and treating them with respect, creating an environment where they can succeed, supporting them letting, them, letting them make mistakes as long as they don't make the same mistake over and over again, right? Holding them accountable, pushing them to do things that maybe they didn't think they could do themselves. So there's a sometimes a healthy tension between these different constituents because you've got to manage different expectations. But I think a key one for me is building those trusting relationships. And we've got people that have stayed at the company 20, 30, 40 years because they know that's the kind of environment that we wanted to create from a cultural standpoint. And people can succeed and be promoted within the company and make a career there. And to me, that's a great environment to, to, have see, to see people succeed. Yeah, yeah. I love the, the healthy tension. That's a cool... That's a cool thing. And I mean, it goes back to what we kind of talked about earlier about like getting out of your comfort zone and stuff like that. Um, what other stuff pops up to you in that when you think about getting out of your comfort zone, healthy tension, do those come together for you or? Yeah, I mean, they're not mutually exclusive, right? Um, and so to me, when you're leading an organization, whether it's a business, whether it's a nonprofit, whether it's, you know, you could be a school teacher, uh, you, these different constituents, if you, if you take time to understand and have ongoing dialogue with what they want mm -hmm. and need, right? It, there are times in the team environment where I've got a direct report and what they want and need isn't something the company can provide any longer. Maybe they aligned for a period of time, right? But they can't for some reason because that person wants to go do something else, right? And that's fine. But then just have the adult conversation, right? And make the transition you know, because sometimes the per sometimes the company outgrows the person. Sometimes the person needs to go do something else. Nothing wrong either way. But that healthy tension, you've got to know where to draw the line because the organization still has to come first. Yeah. So when we're managing expectations around shareholder returns, right, or management role and compensation, right, hard to manage clients' expectations from a quality standpoint and from a service standpoint because they always want more but you can certainly have the conversation about what you can and cannot do, right? For the price that they offered to pay for the service that you provided. Um, so that's a constant iterative process. It's never singular, it's never linear. But I think if you take time to understand what your constituents want and need and, and know how to kind of manage those expectations, um, that to me is part of the healthy tension that you've got to kind of lead through, especially in times of crisis where communication is more important to have to clear, clarify what the direction is and what's going on versus less. Yeah. I would say, you know, in my opinion, and you're just resonating with it, but it's like all the successful leaders I see, a big trade is just communication. And it's not even leadership in business. It's like your, you know, your wife, or I, I don't have any kids yet, but I'm assuming your kids, did you, when you took over, 
Um, I'm assuming, I mean, were there like, I, I guess, you know, it's a family business so people would expect that at some point, you know, someone from your family would take the lead, but like, was there a sense of like having it come out of your shell a little bit and have uncomfortable conversations with people or, um, was that something that came natural to you or how have you kind of approached that? No, uh, it wasn't natural at all. I'm a natural introvert, right? So high social interaction, um, you know, multi-day meetings or conferences, I'm drained at the end of the day and I need downtime to recharge. Um, so those crucial conversations that need to happen along the way, really I got a, a great benefit from an organization called YPO, Young Presidents Organization. Mm-hmm. I think today the standard is around, you know, you've got to run a bit, you've got to be CEO or, or general manager or the, or the chief person of an organization that's at least 15 million in revenue or has, you know, whatever that number of employees is, 100, 100 employees or assets under management of you know, whatever the number is, 100 million, right? There's different criteria that you can meet, but it's a nonprofit member driven organization and they have access to a great deal of business leadership programs conferences. Um, one of those tools that YPO really promotes is called Forum, where you meet with other CEOs of other businesses in completely different industries. They make sure there's a no conflicts situation, right? So you can't have two bankers in the same room. Um, but I got involved in YPO and that monthly forum kind of draws out the ability to have those crucial conversations and really taught me some techniques that I applied to the business. And to your point in life, um, with my wife and my kids that I think helped me become a better person, not just a better leader within a business. And so yeah. whether it's YPO or any other organization or conferences that you can go to, to develop your leadership skills, I, you know, that was a constant, Hey, every year for the first five years as CEO, I tried to go do something out of the business for two or three days and learn about a gap that I thought that I had. Some of that came from board feedback uh, feedback on my performance, right? Or was, uh, they would do kind of a 360, um, ask my team directly, hey, what's John doing well? What's the one thing he needs to improve on? And that would be part of my annual feedback process from my board of directors and our board chair. So that was super helpful. Uh, and as long as you're open to that feedback and you don't get defensive about it, you can really use it as a springboard to go learn about yourself and about a gap you may have in your leadership skills that you can go plug that gap. There's places out there to go do that. You just got to find the right resource. Find the right resource. Um, if you don't mind me asking, um, what were some of the techniques you had mentioned? There were some techniques I learned that I applied at work and with my family. Is there anything like in particular that kind of jumps out that you could share? Yeah. So uh, I think probably one of the key lessons I learned and then applied it was getting to the right question. Um, I love that whether you're a CEO or whether you're a manager in a business or whether you're a spouse, uh, whether you've got kids or not, right? I found telling people what to do doesn't really work. Um, I, don't like, I don't like being told what to do, right? Um, but if you can get to the core issue by asking the right question, even if it takes you a little bit of time to get to that core and it happens over more than one occasion, so I would really think through when I had my one-on-ones with my direct reports uh, in the business and we would have monthly you know, one-on-ones and we'd have a monthly team meeting. Anyway, I would ask myself, okay, what's going on in this business unit? Are we performing? Are we underperforming? If we're underperforming, where and how? How do I get, just make up a name, Tom. How do I get Tom to move off the dime here? 
right? Telling him what to go do isn't what we need to do as leaders. Asking Tom how he's going to achieve that result or why is it that we always seem to get stuck in this situation? What's that core? What's that one question that's going to make somebody go, oh, crap. He's not really happy with me right now. I need to go get something done here and I need to come back to him next month with a plan because if I don't, it's going to get worse, not better. So whether it's a direct report, whether it's a spouse, right? Sometimes asking that of a spouse is a, is a hard answer because you don't want the answer, right? Um, <laughs> it's not quite as, prof- as professional right. of an environment either all the no, time. Yeah. And my wife doesn't want a performance review, right? So <laughs> she just doesn't. And know. mine doesn't want a coaching session. So um, exactly. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so it, you know, to me, I, I spent time thinking about what's the core question I want to get at. And I've had people come back to me, you know, a year or two later and say, John, when you asked me that question, you looked right through me. Right. Uh, And it meant that they moved as a result of that right question and they activated. And I think that's much more powerful than suggesting someone. So instead of telling somebody what to do, you define what outcomes you're trying to achieve and let them define how. As long as it's culturally aligned with the organization, you give them a lot of freedom to operate. And I think people appreciate that. And that's the fun yeah. part of leadership, I think. Wow, that's awesome. Um, getting to the right question. How do you challenge yourself? You've talked a lot about the boards. It sounds like you were groomed in a great environment. Um, the board, uh, obviously your parents, but taking yourself personally, how do you kind of get to the right questions? I mean, you're the CEO of a big company. There's a lot of people pulling at you. How do you know the right questions that you need to answer every day or how, you know, to grow from 14, for 300 to 1400? Yeah. You know, everybody evolves differently, right? Earlier in my career, early in the CEO range, I was setting kind of the daily five things I needed to get done. Mm-hmm. Right? So you like had like a list that you wrote down I, five I, things? I, I wrote it down on a piece of paper. That was yeah. my process, right? I'd wake up in the morning, whatever, do my do my deal, right? First thing I would do when I got to the office was write down the five things I needed to do today. And by the way, a couple of them, you know, could be personal. Hey, I've got to be home by six o'clock tonight because my wife and I have a dinner that we need to go to. So I'm leaving the office by five today or 5.30, whatever it is, right? That might've been number five, but that's one of the things I got to get done today. So I better be efficient in my day because I can't let my day get away from me knowing I got to leave at five. I can't stick around till six or seven tonight, right? Sure. Um, so what are the five things I needed? So I did that process really religiously for the first year or two. And then it just kind of became automatic and habit. Yep. So I didn't need to do it anymore. And then you kind of go from there, right? So you, you define the priorities, you know, annual business plan. You're setting priorities for the year, right? You're, we're writing it down. We're putting it into a business plan. The team is involved in it. It's iterative. That usually would take about a two or three month process every year before we set the budget and the objectives for the year, but the team had ownership of it because they contributed to it. Every iteration, we would do this three or four iterations over this you know, two or three month period. They had ownership of it because they could see the objectives being defined by the team effort. And, and so board feedback. And so I also set up meetings that were offset. So I would have um, quarterly board meetings but uh-huh. we'd have monthly management meetings. So I would take the board feedback I was getting and then introduce those topics to the monthly management meeting and then say, hey, Kate, hey, guys, folks, we got to take this topic back to the board next quarter. What do we need to do in the next 60 days to prepare for that? 
what's our plan to address this issue or to grow in this segment or to set up a new facility in Europe or Asia PAC. Um, let's, and, and then that iterative process kind of drove the annual plan. Wow. So to me, that's the fun part about designing. And then the one-on-ones monthly kind of allowed us to analyze whether the team was meeting expectation or not, or that person's role in the team or in the organization and provide feedback on an ongoing basis regarding their contribution. Uh, and I think that combination of things really served me well so that we could iterate and I was getting feedback from different constituents along the way. So there were very few surprises that happened because that, that routine cadence of meetings that involved these different constituents. And I think that was yeah. the fun part. Um, yeah, I guess another question I have, that's kind of more on the personal side of things. You kind of mentioned, I get up in the morning and I do my deal. And then I go, I create my list. Are there, were there personal habits that you have or things that you do religiously that helps you one deal with pressure to, you know, be the best version of yourself? I mean, simple as a cup of water when you wake up every day or, um, reading books, what, what, what what's worked for you over the years to kind of continue to sharpen the ax on a personal level? Yeah. So there were two things really for me, you know, one was fitness, just making sure I'm, I'm exercising. Uh, and for me, the gym is the gym, right? I don't love it. It's not my favorite thing to do, but tennis, water skiing, sport for me was my kind of haven. Mm -hmm. Um, and secondly, making sure I, I spent time away from the business, whether that's with family, whether that's a vacations, whether it's sport, right? I, if I am working long hours for a quarter or two, um, I need a break. Otherwise, I'm not fresh. So I, I was pretty disciplined in trying to take time off, whether it's weekends, whether it's vacations, whether it's you know a, a day here or a couple days there. Between the fitness and trying to do you know two or three times a week something, and the break from the business kept me fresh. So I could come back in and look at the, look at things objectively because when you're under a lot of pressure or there's lots to do and you can't take a break, I know myself well enough now where I, I'll, I'll get burned out. And the last couple of years with having to go through a global pandemic and the sale of the business and some other elements of that, it happens, right? You're putting in 60, 80 hours a week um, and very little time for a break and your phone's constantly going off. And if I would go ski, I'd come back to, you know, two voicemails and three texts and 17 emails. Yeah. Right. You guys spend the next couple hours trying to catch up on that stuff. Uh, but long story short, those two things. And it, whether it's read a book, whether it's garden, wh- whatever it is for you personally. Right. I need a time away from the business and fitness and, and time away where my ways to stay fresh and continue to improve. Because getting back to your other question. Right. What kind of drives me is, hey, I want to I want to make it better. Uh, tomorrow. Today's another opportunity to make something better for the organization. Mm for the world, for my family, however you want to define it. Um, water skiing, you know, I'm sure Shelby talked about this in his talk with you. Hey, we're always trying to get better. I'm 55 years old, but I still think I can ski better than I do today. I still think I can run more buoys. I still think I can improve my technique and get better scores in the sport. And when we apply that thought process to business, hey, let's get better every day. Let's get better every week. Let's get better every year. Let's improve our quality. Let's improve our service. Let's improve our, our, you know, our data collection activities. Let's improve our compliance. How do we get better? 
And asking those kinds of questions on a continuous improvement process really can drive a business incrementally. And it's the old Jim Collins, you know, flywheel thing, right? You're pushing against that flywheel. It's hardly moving, but you're inching it along. All of a sudden you get some momentum and that flywheel starts to run. And then you look back over the last couple of years and like, oh man, we did, we did a lot of really good things. We're in a much better position today than we were a couple of years ago. And it's because of that constant continuous improvement effort. Yeah. It, there's, I just finished a book called Mindset uh, by I think Carol Dweck. But anyway, the, the pro, because one of the things I think is hard, and I know that I speak it to myself, but in general is falling in love with the process. Um, when you're in it, you're like, God, this is tough. It sucks. Um, why can't I just be at the end? And then oftentimes when you get to the end of anything, you look back, you're like, wow, that was really cool. So it's like being able to, like you said, wake up and fall in love with that process or just, you know, be focused on now and today. And that's hard to do though, isn't it? It's a balance, right? It, it, you can't be so strategic and so far reaching in your view of the future that you're not dealing with the practical reality of today. And yeah. you can't. And by the same end of the spectrum, you can't just focus on today, tomorrow, next week, because if you're not looking at the trends, you're not going to see where the puck is going. Mm -hmm. So there's a balance between long-term, short-term. Um, I don't know the, the the real answer to that question, right? Yeah. I just, I know board helps with strategy and they're going to push, and they did push me to, to think longer term. The team's going to be more operational in nature and look at the shorter term. And it's, it's that delicate balance between not getting hung up too much on any one spectrum, one end of the spectrum and making sure we're looking at both because as a CEO, you've got to kind of know where that puck is going and, and look out three, five, seven years in today's world, a lot can change. Uh, so you've got to be able to pivot. And I think a couple of things that we've done over the years really is dealing with the reality that we're in. Um, and so whether it's a global pandemic, whether it's a global recession, um, you know, whether there's other things that hit our business that were unanticipated, Sometimes you just got to stop and say, you know what, we just got to take care of our clients, got to take care of our people, uh, make sure we're compliant with the regulations and no more new stuff for the next two quarters. We're not going to go, you know, put a new facility in somewhere down in South America. We're not going to expand that service like we thought we we're going to. We're just going to stop because we got to take care of the core business. Mm -hmm. And we did that a couple of times over the last decade where there was a crisis and instead of going to do a bunch of new things that might have been on our list, we said, pause. Let's, for the next quarter or two, just focus on these three things. You know, quality service compliance, whatever it might have been. And that pause, I think, gave people a breath and said, okay, I don't need to worry about that other stuff right now. I just focus on the core business. Let's make sure we're healthy and stable. Then we'll come back to that later because, you know what, that'll wait. And it's not going to be critical to our future if it happens two quarters later. So yeah. it's just those judgments that you've got to make based on feedback and the kind of that sixth sense as a CEO to say, hey, can we press for that or or not? Um, and just making that judgment call. Yeah. Looking back at everything you've done um, as the CEO and in life, is there anything in particular that jumps out at you that you would have done differently had you gone back to 10 years or something like that? Is there anything in general? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> how long is that list, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. And it's more, I guess, more strategic than, hey, what mistake did you make? But, yeah. um, you know, um, early, a lot earlier on in my career and I'm looking at, you know, and I'm probably going a certain way 
I guess you could almost look at that of that question as what would you have done differently or in the same token, what advice would you give to someone who's maybe that you would have liked to have gotten at a little bit earlier on in your career? If that helps. No, I, I you know, so while you were kind of expanding on the question, I was able to think for a second. So I, you know, <laughs> if there's one core thing that I do well today that I would have liked to have done earlier in my career, even before becoming CEO, right? I, I think, as we evolve in our careers, you know, here, here, I'm a lawyer, right? I, I practice law. I was a criminal prosecutor, so I was in court. Um, you know, I'm good on my feet in front of a group, right? I can speak publicly with confidence. I, I'm, I'm, I'm the shit, right? I'm, I'm all mm-hmm. that. Um, but that's not how people respond in many cases, especially in a leadership role. And so, if there's one thing I think I would have liked to have learned earlier in my career, it's the whole service to others approach. You know, if we're in an organization as a leader, whether it's over a a department or a function or a site or an organization, um, it's about people and encouraging them and giving them the environment to be successful as long as it aligns with the organization. And if we look at it, in a service to others mentality, whether it's service to shareholders to give them a good return, whether it's to customers to give them quality and service, whether it's to the team to encourage them to succeed and maybe do things they didn't think they could. Um, if I learned that earlier in my career, I don't know if the results would have been a whole lot different, but I would have liked to have learned it earlier in my career so that I could have applied it sooner. Cause I think that's what is part of the success today And I can look back on and say, you know what? We built a great organization. It was already there before I came on board. Don't get me wrong. You know, my parents and others before us took the risk. I just got it in an as found position. But we also did four acquisitions and two divestments over this 15 year period. Um, And now we just did two more acquisitions in the last six months since we sold and our private equity partner came in. So a lot of really good outcomes as a result of, of the service to others mentality. But that really kind of is the common thread across the value system and the company and the culture. And when you do that, then good things happen because you engender yourself to others because they know you're going to support them even in times of crisis and difficulty. And when you can build that trust and people know that they're, that they're going to be protected is not the right word, right? Cause it's not always a safe environment because you still got to perform. Everybody still has to be held accountable. But if you know, people are going to take care of you and vice versa, then you're willing to go the extra mile because you know, you'll get rewarded for it. And I think that's probably the lesson that I would have liked to have learned earlier in my career. Cause it, you know, when you're in your twenties and your early thirties, sometimes you don't always realize that till later on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I know we're kind of coming up towards the end here. I do have one last question for you. Um, and I have a punch here, but I, I appreciate going through what we went through. It's funny when you prepare for these, you're like, I got to have all these questions and then it just goes where it goes. So this has been a great conversation. Um, but I want to ask you, so now you've, you've sold your business. Um, you know, what's, what's next for you? What's, and I know you're decompressing, but you, you don't strike me as a guy that's going to put his feet at 55, going to put his feet up at the beach for, for, for the next <laughs> 30 to 50 years. So what's, what do you think it looks like? Yeah, no, I'll get too bored uh, doing yeah. that. Uh, so I, fortunately, I've a great relationship with our private equity partners that came into the business last year. Um, they've asked me to, and I've agreed to stay on the board of directors and still be chair of our mergers and acquisitions committee on the board. So I'm still playing a role in helping 
through my industry connections and contacts and relationships, still look for really good companies that are aligned with our model around providing great service to customers and getting healthcare products to market. So really still doing some M&A, but from a governance standpoint, not from an operational one, right? Um, you know, what's next? I don't, beyond that, there's going to be more. I just don't know what. I don't think I want to run another company someday, uh, unless it's a coffee shop, right? Uh, <laughs> um, my wife has a flower shop. Uh, you know, I'm going to help her out with that. I've already done some deliveries for her, right? Mother's Day was last weekend, but, you know, Valentine's Day before that. Here I am making deliveries for my wife, which is all good. Back uh, to the grind. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I'm going to take the rest of the year off, right, if you will, and then just decompress. Um, some good friends told me, hey, John, whenever you go through this process, you know, wait at least six months, maybe even a year before you decide to do anything else, because um, you need that time, right? It was a heavy lift the last, you know, couple of years with the global pandemic, with uh, the sale of the business that did get paused because of COVID uh, and then started back up again. Uh, and some other events that transpired prior to that time that required a lot of time in the business. So I, what's next? I don't know. I don't care. Um, I'll figure it out. I'm not that worried about that. I want to go water ski. I want to go play some tennis. I'm going to get fit again, uh, stay healthy. And then what happens after that, you know, I'll figure out. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, hey, it's been a great, great having you on. I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, yeah, it's been awesome, man. Thank you. Joe, appreciate it. Uh, good luck with your business. Uh, appreciate the opportunity and look forward to staying in touch.